Welcome back to Oriate. Thank you for tuning in. A little disclaimer at the beginning of this cast. We had some technical difficulties, which led to my microphone not working terribly well. You can still hear me, but for those hard of hearing, one does need to wince slightly to take in the questions. But hang in there. We miss nothing of the good stuff from our wonderful guest, Dr. Paul Robertson. I hope you can stay with us and enjoy this show. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to Oriate, uh, the show that is exploring the meaning of work from a Christian point of view. My name is Stuart Weir. I am the host of the show. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you to my friend, who I've actually not seen in quite a long time. Paul Robertson. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. It's great to have you here, and you're here in person. I know. It's just um, very odd. It's very odd, isn't it? Yeah, great to see you. And uh, this show is all about the meaning of our daily work and how we make sense or not of that from a Christian perspective. How do we find meaning in our work? What is the purpose of our work? What do we What do we do with our work? And um, tell us a little bit about um, what you spend a lot of your waking hours doing. Um, yeah. So I am a consultant microbiologist. I work in the NHS in a hospital in Ayrshire, um, and I work as the clinical lead for the the microbiology lab there. So we are a lab based in a hospital and we process samples that are taken from patients in the hospital and from general practice, uh, really to see if there is infection um, and if there is, what are the best treatments to give those patients. So my role really as the one of the doctors in the lab, I don't do much looking through microscopes or, uh, or running the test myself. I tend to act as the go-between between between the lab scientists and the clinicians who are looking after the patients. So I try to translate what goes on in the lab into clinical speak and vice versa, try and help the scientists understand what the clinicians are interested in. That sounds almost a bit like you're an interpreter of sorts. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair way to a fair way to describe it, yeah. I mean, f- my job is partly in- involved in the quality of the, the samples that are processed and um, producing reports, but I also deal with um, advice. So if the clinical teams are looking for advice on how to investigate a patient or what treatments to give a patient that is particularly difficult, then um, we would become involved in that as well. Um, now, we also link with quite a lot of the non-clinical teams. So we're involved in infection control. So we work with infection control teams and that often involves working with the estates department. Um, we work through public health. So the, the doctors that are responsible for the health of the community at large. So we work across a number of different groups, which is part of what makes the job interesting and stimulating. Now, infection control, that, that's sounding fairly relevant 
at the moment. Um, how has your job been caught up, involved with the pandemic? Yeah, um, we are kind of at the epicenter of it now. Um, so we do all the COVID testing for NHS patients in Ayrshire and Arran. Okay. We help uh, give advice to the infection control team uh, as part of COVID response. Um, so since COVID started, we have had to set up new testing um, equipment and, yeah. and lines. Our staff have had to learn how to do this. We've had to do it at an unprecedented speed and an unprecedented volume. So we did a little bit of similar uh, testing before COVID, um, but we've in the last year or so probably done six or seven times the number of samples that we would have done in a, in a normal year. So there's been huge pressure on the, the lab staff to learn new skills, to do it at pace, um, to do it at a huge volume. So we've now done, I think, 140,000 samples since it all started, um, whilst also trying to keep all the other testing that we did going, going in the background, and also like everybody else having to do that whilst juggling homeschooling and isolation and, and all the rest of it. So it's been, it's My been pretty goodness. tough. So what, what was it like in March last year for your team? So yeah, it really started for us in January last year. Okay. So I can't remember the exact date, but we got an email from somebody in public health Scotland saying there was this virus that had been isolated in, in China is causing a few cases. Now, we get an email like that maybe once or twice a year about some new infection or other, um, and it never turns into anything. So okay. we didn't we didn't pay it too much attention until it cases started appearing in Italy and, and elsewhere in Europe. So at that point, we were then trying to concentrate on should a patient turn up in Ayrshire, how would we get them tested safely, because at that point, all the testing was done in Porton Down in a kind of specialist lab in London. So there was no testing in Scotland at that point. Our focus was on how do we get the one or two patients who might have it tested? Um, so then that quite quickly evolved into, well, how are we going to do the testing ourselves? Um, and then it became quite apparent over the summer that the volume of testing that was going to be needed was like nothing we'd had to deal with before. So a microbiology lab in most hospitals tends to, we're not at the forefront of anything. So we tend to kind of hum along in the background. Um, and a lot of the tests that we do often take a day or two before we produce results. Okay. We have gone from humming along in the background, producing results that are occasionally helpful to being one of the hinges on which the whole hospital runs because without testing, without knowing a negative or a positive test, there's very little now that can happen. So all of a sudden, the speed at which we've had to turn around tests and the volume of tests needed has, has totally changed. Wow. So I'm thinking of a number of things here. Uh, you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, but 
how were you how did you find that the team adapted to having to create tests for this virus we know as COVID-19 was that was that a difficult process was that what did that look like was that tense was it or was it something your team is just trained for that it just you hit the ground running yeah so I mean we've been fortunate so we've, we've got a really good team um, and we had enough expertise to be able to start testing with the limited equipment that we had already. Okay. Um, that was good. It took quite a bit of work to be able to do it. Um, it's kind of like working across um, different computer platforms. So it's trying, the, an analogy would be trying to get Mac software to run on a Windows. So you can do it if you know what you're doing, but it's not straightforward. Okay. And it takes some time to to readjust the equipment that we had to what we wanted it to do. And of course, that was equipment that was already doing something. So very quickly, in order to do the COVID testing that we needed to do, we had to make some very quick decisions to stop doing a lot of things, um, the same as a lot of other areas in the health service. And that mm -hmm. was very difficult um, because very suddenly you are not doing things that people have been expecting before. Okay, wow. Um, the testing that we were doing with the machines that we had, again, very quickly it became clear that the one machine that we had was not going to be enough. So we um, were given extra equipment. One of the things that happened during the pandemic was that there was a huge um, rush on getting this stuff. So just like there were toilet paper and um, staples sold out and you couldn't get your hands on them. Yeah. The same happened with PCR diagnostic tests and diagnostic kits. And then later on, even the reagents and um, plastic pipette tips were very difficult to get hold of. So in Scotland, there was a national procurement program, which has actually worked really well, which has tried to ensure that every board in Scotland has had enough resource so things have been allocated in an equitable as equitable a way as was possible at such short notice so we've always been kept in equipment it's never been the equipment that we would necessarily have chosen but it's got <laughs> us through so far um, but it's meant that our staff have had to bring in new equipment three or four times during the pandemic get used to new equipment um, train on that um, so yes, it's been wow. a steep learning curve. Wow. Uh, the other thing that sprung to mind, I'm sure there's loads of other things that listeners are thinking of when they're hearing you unpack this story of your situation at work and how this all kicked off. But as a team, how difficult was that dynamically with, with the personalities you have? Did you have to dig deep in... Um, supporting one another, um, keeping one another safe and healthy, deferring to one another. How did that play out? What was that like in your team? Because yes. it was a panicked situation. It was really hard. Yeah, so I think for the first few months, we got through it on a lot of adrenaline. Okay. So everybody was up for the challenge and... Um, 
we at that stage when we were everyone was under a fairly strict lockdown actually for us getting into work was a normalizing thing so having that routine yeah. and 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 going to work and doing your work what kind of what you would usually do and then coming back and getting out of the house and having conversations without uh, that weren't with primary school children kind of was a um, a stimulating thing so initially we just got going and and cope reasonably well um what became clear when the numbers started to come down over the summer is that we weren't going to get a break and that as the numbers came down the emphasis was going to be on how do we scale up the volume of testing that we're doing oh, right. okay. so we just kept working as hard because the testing numbers didn't ever stop or go down we were just adding tier upon tier of other people that needed testing so that became more stretching um, and certainly i work in a team of three other uh, medical doctors and a team of about 30 or 40 lab scientists and, and assistants um, okay. and with my team of with the team of doctors we generally speaking at any one time one or two of us were struggling and the others were okay, okay. and we were able to uh, encourage and pull each other yeah. up a bit yeah there were once or twice when we were all hit and down at the same time and that was difficult yeah um, yeah. yeah my goodness well, it's just, it's hard to take in because I'm not in your world in that sense, working world. So that's just quite an incredible thing you've been through and it is ongoing, right? But I mean, that beginning is, part yeah. where you don't have the kit or enough of the kit and everything is urgent and everything is important and everything is a lot. Yeah. yeah, but I think similar to what a lot of healthcare professionals are noticing just now, there was a... It was almost like a wartime camaraderie that developed okay. that the amount of interdepartmental working during that phase hasn't happened before and it probably won't happen again people were very willing to help out and go in above and beyond for that time wow. um, really... it was different in december and january and february okay. partly because the pressure the volume of cases was much greater and partly because it's a nearly a year down the line and people are tired um, yeah. and that same deja vu is kind of creeping in now as cases are starting to rise again so again we're not cutting back on any of our testing work and the emphasis now is not so much on volume but on speed of testing it's how can we test patients who are coming into hospital within half an hour rather than a number of hours so that's where our focus is now. Wow. If I can do a step change here, I want to go back. Um, that's just an amazing, I know you've distilled that into the shortest time <laughs> to try and summarize some of the things you have to deal with. But I'm also interested in why you're a microbiologist and how you got into this whole game in the first instance anyway. And so I just want to know, did, were you, when you chose to do medicine, were you already a follower of Jesus at that stage or? 
Yeah, I was. I I grew up in a Christian household. So my dad's a minister, and now I have a brother who's a a minister. So we grew up following Jesus, um, which actually played into my decision to join medicine or apply for medicine. Not at all, I think. (laughs) Um, I enjoyed science at school. I pretty liked biology. I probably had some vague notion that helping people was a good thing, but there was no specifically Christian reasoning for my choosing medicine, I think. Okay, okay. And so, well, that's helpful. You know, that's probably 50% more uh, reasonably thought through than I would have been at at that same age. So, (laughs) and anything to do with work. Um, So, but I, have you been able to, in retrospect, build into your thinking genuine Christian meaning in what you're doing? And can you give us a couple or at least one example of finding a Christian interpretation of what you're doing in microbiology? Yeah, maybe before I do that, I should probably give a little bit more of a fuller story of how I got into microbiology yeah, uh, because it will all tie in together probably. So at medical school, I got interested in infections um, so I did um, what's called an intercalated science degree. So you take a little bit of time out of medicine to study in more detail some science. And I did medical microbiology. Um, and I was fascinated that these little things that you can't see um, had such profound effects on people and animals and that you could treat them and that you could cure them or prevent them. And I find that really interesting. Um, so. I developed an interest in infection at that point. And then I went on to do medical training um, down in Wales um, and then some research over in the States and then came back to do higher training in infectious diseases and medicine in Glasgow. So I did a number of years in that um, working in Gartnavel Hospital in the West End of Glasgow, um, looking after some inpatients with tropical diseases or tuberculosis or HIV, um, doing outpatient work with patients with HIV and and hepatitis C um, and really enjoyed that side of it. Um, But I left it um, shortly before I finished my training um, for a number of reasons. I mean, medicine's hard going um, and part and working as a trainee can be difficult. Um, You're fairly low down the pecking order in terms of uh, your trainees are not always looked after as well as they should. Um, So there was some unhappiness um, in how at that point trainees were being treated. Um, I wasn't sure that the intensities of clinical medicine would dovetail well with a family life. Um, And also I felt some sense of actually God saying, I want you to leave to do something else without really having a clear sense of what the something else was going to be. Um, So I ended up resigning to much bemusement of my colleagues with about a year left of my training program. I remember this. We were friends by this point. Yeah. Um, And what was fascinating at that point, um, having decided to leave and assumed for a long time that 
religion and faith were one of those topics that you just didn't talk about to colleagues at work was how interested people were about my decision and what I chose to do with the break. Um, and what I chose to do with the break was to go and study some theology, okay. um, which I did at International Christian College in Glasgow, as it was at the time. And it was really there that I kind of got into theology of work. Um, and the concept that the actual work that I was doing might have some value. So before then, the kind of intersection of doctoring and faith was largely around medical ethics yes. and overseas mission. So bringing medical skills to yes. developing nations yeah. um, or evangelizing your colleagues and or giving up time from your medical job to serve in a church or a voluntary setting in the UK. And during my work, I think I was becoming increasingly frustrated by the idea that you could either be a good doctor and do your job well, or you could be a good Christian and do the evangelism bits and do the voluntary bits but feel that you weren't pulling your weight in terms of your actual work, but it was difficult to actually do both in a satisfying way. Hmm. Um, and yeah, at ICC, reading around some of the theology of work stuff and being influenced, I guess, by you via Daryl Cosden, mm -hmm. And, we had on the show last week. Yeah, yeah, and Mark Green from LICC um, helped me to see or appreciate the value of the actual work um, in a number of ways. Um, so having done that for a couple of years, I thought, actually, I'd like to pursue theology of work stuff a bit more. And I thought, actually, the best way to do that is to go back to, quote, unquote, a proper job. <laughs> So I got a job part-time working in a microbiology lab in Lanarkshire, which came up mysteriously at just the right moment for me. Um, and then decided, having done that part-time for a couple of years, to go back into medical training. And I completed my higher training in microbiology uh, a few years ago now in, in Glasgow, um, which took me where I am now, being a, a consultant microbiologist. Um, so it's been a roundabout mm -hmm. trip to where I've got. Yeah. Um, my training period was much longer than would normally um, uh, take. Um, but the theology interludes was really helpful, mm -hmm. actually, both from helping me to think through what I thought God thought about my work, but also actually studying an art subject as someone who'd been predominantly science-based, I think has helped me um, think through arguments and write more um, clearly. Um, we did some really useful modules on uh, leadership and conflict management, which have actually turned out to be very helpful in my line of work. Um, so for a number of reasons, the, the ICC course was, was really useful. 
It's amazing how many stories I've heard about, you know, for some of us, we actually need to step away from something we're currently doing in order to make sense of either going on to do a new thing or going back to doing the thing you were doing before and how that hiatus period, whatever's in there, whether it's further study or just doing something different is pure gold for our, our thinking through how do we, how do we do this life? You know? Um, so it's great to hear another, another example of that in your experience. Yeah. So, where you are now, are there a, is there a theme or a couple of themes or aspects of theology that stick with you, even if it's once you get home and you've decompressed and you've maybe had a wee bottle of beer and you go, do you know something, a, a, a part of your Christian thinking breaks into your consciousness and you think, do you know what, there was some good there, or actually there was some evil over there today in the lab or whatever. Do you, how is some of that theological thinking that you did at International Christian College, how does it help you interpret your daily work from time to time as you're doing it now? I think, I mean, I guess concepts of of God's kingdom, um, and that that kind of kingdom life or foretaste of a new creation applies everywhere. It's not a church thing, um, or just a church thing. So it applies in the workplace, and it applies at home just as much as as anywhere else. So how I view, um, not that I deal with many patients, but how I view patients and how I view my colleagues, how I speak to them um, is important. Mm. How we deal with conflict is important. Um, how we man make sure that patients are treated fairly and that there is um, equity of service regardless of what kind of person you are is really important. Mm. Um, and I mean, interestingly, at least to me, um, a lot of the, the watchwords of medical quality in Scotland and, and wider, um, so healthcare that is safe, healthcare that is respectful, healthcare that is caring, um, these are, are phrases that you'll hear commonly in NHS Scotland um, documents. They're all rooted in work that um, was done in 70s, 80s, early 90s by an American doctor called Avidis Donabadian, okay. um, who was a Christian. Um, right. He was a, a refugee. He was unable to work clinically in the States. So he did a lot of the basic um, principles of medical quality. So a lot of what we do and think about as important is actually rooted in his Christianly influenced thinking about how we make medicine safe and effective and caring. Um, so he oh, has been a that. he has yeah. been a an influence. Um, That's so fascinating. Yeah, not not come across mm -hmm. him at all. 
What about, um, so let's pick up this concept of the kingdom of God, because it is one of those ethereal things in a way, isn't it? Like, one has to do a lot of thinking and a lot of listening and a lot of reading to start to come to grips a wee bit with the concept of the kingdom of God, right? It's, it's one of those, it is a tough concept, you know, in general terms. So, um, I wondered, I was just thinking about this, about Jesus being the king of that kingdom. And not only is he a king, he's also a healer. Uh, Jesus earthly ministry, he went about healing people. Uh, some of his disciples went about doing the same thing as well. And I wondered whether that shapes the fact that Jesus, the king of this kingdom that we belong to, that we're trying to show signs of, to uh, demonstrate. Um, given that Jesus was a healer, do you, do you see that, that there could be any synergy between your work in science microbiology um, and trying to bring health and well-being to people, caring for people's bodies, their whole person, with Jesus' healing ministry? Is that anything that you've considered before? Yeah. Um, I think the answer, perhaps surprising, is no. I don't think there's much synergy with me as a doctor in, in that Jesus' healing ministry must, I guess, apply equally or be equally available or unavailable to any follower of Jesus. So, yes, I think God's kingdom is about um, ultimately healing, restoration, life in all its fullness. The idea of Jesus being a healer, for me anyway, doesn't particularly help how I think about being a doctor because Jesus wasn't a doctor. And for me, it would be like trying to say the miracle at Cana or the feeding of the 5,000 should inform how you do catering. I mean, it's you can see the principles broadly behind it, mm -hmm. but in the nitty gritty of how I or how we use medicine to heal, it's, it feels so divorced from the methodology that Jesus used to go about that, that um, the fact that he healed people um, he had an efficacy that we don't, <laughs> I think. Um, and I, as I said, yeah, I think as a medical professional, there are there's lots that I can um, be inspired by or follow, but to use his healing ministry as some kind of model for mine, I, I struggle to, I guess, to join the two up in as direct a way as that, if that okay. makes sense. Um, so efficacy is one aspect of it but also methodology yeah just for me to crudely summarize what yeah. you so nicely said <laughs> yeah but, okay. but also i mean jesus healing ministry is available or was available however you you want to phrase it to people who aren't doctors so yes. he wasn't a doctor as we would understand it yes the healings that we read about in the gospels and acts weren't they were just regular followers of jesus so that kind of ministry, I guess, as I said, is, is either available or not to anybody 
who follows Jesus, not specifically a healthcare professional. Okay, yeah, that's no, it's fascinating. And I think there's a chap who you and I both have been influenced by, a guy, a Croat called Miroslav Volf. Uh, he's now based in the States. I think he would probably go as far to say, well, actually, this actually has also to do with the spiritual gift of healing. So maybe not available to everybody, but available to those who've been given the gift of healing. Uh, and that may actually inform what kind of work you go into. So he sees it wrapped up with the spiritual gifts, which is fascinating. I've not actually heard him specifically unpack that uh, in a, here's the gift of healing, and doctors could go in that direction, but you could go there quite easily from his arguments. But, uh, yeah, really interesting. What about, um, you've talked about this hiatus of coming out of medicine for a while to do some thinking, to do some deep theological thinking, some research, some writing, to then come to the conclusion that I need to go back into this and... Tell us a little bit about um, how you, your work, even in the last number of years since you've gone back, has changed you as a person in that you're not quite the same Paul Robertson anymore because of some of the experiences you've had. Um, you are, there are things that will stick with you cannot be extricated from you because you've experienced those things at work. Um, have you got an example perhaps that you could draw upon there? Yeah, I mean, I guess work shapes you pretty profoundly. Um, and that's probably no different from, I mean, the other significant things in my life in the last 10 years or so have been being married and having children and, those are profoundly shaping experiences as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, working in medicine and working in the NHS, there are definitely ways that you are shaped for good, um, relationships that you have, or um, at least the idea that you are working to help and benefit people. Um, but there are also negatively shaping influences in work and the NHS is definitely no exception. Um, and I mean, COVID will highlight that, that um, for the patients that we sometimes help, there are others who are not helped. Healthcare sometimes harms people. And through COVID, we've seen a lot of death, um, a lot of death and a lot of having to rational ration the the equipment and um, the testing mm. um, that we've had um, and a lot of people working in the NHS the, the term that's been used in in professional journals is is moral injury where they are being um, adversely impacted by having to make difficult decisions um, now I'm not someone who has to work in an intensive care unit um, under the most extreme conditions, but certainly in the lab, we have fairly regularly had to decide with the limited testing that we have, who, who do we prioritize? 
Um, and those things are stressful decisions. Mm. Um, and a, certainly the, the clinical guys are much more affected. Um, and the impact of work on mental health is much better recognized now than it would have been before. And I'm thankful that um, our own board in Ayrshire place a high priority in staff well-being as a kind of coping um, for the organization and have set up actually a lot of well-being services um, run by staff and run by the, the chaplaincy. Um, that includes uh, another ICC graduate, uh, oh, Andy Gillies. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think there has been a big negative impact on mental health for for me as well. Um, stress and sleepless nights and um, particularly in the dark, the dark months of the winter, um, yeah. um, mood being low and struggling sometimes. But I mean, we've had a good organisation, good colleagues and I mean, supportive family. So, um, yeah, there's, I think, work shapes you in good ways and in negative ways. Yeah. Well, that's, that's when you describe it like that, you can really see the very real decisions you're having to make. Um, just how much weight, I mean, even theoretically, I don't even know what that would feel like to be all honest with you. Um, just how that would mark your person in some way. It'd be some kind of scar on your on your body, <laughs> for want of a better phrase. You know, that, that, that'll stick with you, right? Um, and yet, on the other hand, perhaps things like how you've dealt with conflict as a team positively, how you've, your collegiality, your, your support, and that just out of sheer necessity. Yeah, and I think there's definitely a sense of pride in the lab and the colleagues I work with that we have got through this as far as we have and as well as we have. Um, yeah. To have gone from nothing to 140,000 tests under the circumstances that we've had to operate in is, is I think, pretty remarkable. There'll be something forged very deep amongst your team, I would imagine. It's almost like you forgive the very glib comparison, but it's like going on tour together. You, you must have developed such a brilliant bond, um, even with people you wouldn't naturally get on that well with because there has been that much of an emergency, that much of a, a push. And you've had to function, haven't you? You've had to be on it, a game every day, week after week. Uh, that must have brought you s such tight, uh, as a kinship almost as a team, you know, in these circumstances. Is yeah. that true to say, or are you just still dragging it? I th the majority, I think that's true. I think a lot of us probably are closer as a team than before. Yeah. Um, but I think also where there were fractures in the team or fractures in the organization, some of those have actually been deepened. Okay. Um, so the stress has caused some relationships to break down. Um, okay. That's, I think, much more of a minority, um, but it's certainly not all um, 
one big group hug. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's really interesting, fascinating stuff. Uh, Paul, it has been fabulous to have you with us. I think there's just loads there for our listeners to draw upon. Both fascinating to hear your story, what you do uh, with your everyday work but also your understanding of it from a Christian perspective, some of the detours and roundabouts you've taken and and the direction you're going in now. Uh, Just so wonderful to have you just express a Christian um, view of doing microbiology in the West of Scotland today. Thanks so much for joining us on Oriate. You're very welcome, Stuart. I hope it's been helpful. Yeah, absolutely. God bless you, mate. Thanks.